Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawson Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Once again, welcome, Carlos. How are you? I'm fine, Alberto. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah, yeah well... It's good. You're nice and warm down there. We're we, we're warm up here today too. It it was like 41 or 42 degrees oh. Fahrenheit. Oh my goodness! It's well, it's 83 degrees. Uh, <laughs> Rub it in. <laughs> 83 degrees today when I stepped outside. Uh, but otherwise, yeah. we're 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 happy to have you on and happy to be talking to you again on on this this next episode and and excited that we're going to finally start getting into the actual mystics, the Christian mystics in this episode. Yes. But, but before we do that, I just wanted to, for our for our listeners, and if anybody's just coming across this podcast now uh, on this episode, um, just wanted to stress how important it is. The first three episodes that we did, we laid the groundwork for the definition of mysticism and what is and isn't mysticism. And it'll really help our listeners to understand what's going on as we talk about these different mystics uh, in the future episodes. So if you have a chance, go back, listen to these episodes so you can get a good grounding and a good and a good foundation to understand better what we're, we'll be talking about. But as we left off on our last episode and we sort of started touching on it, and, and in this episode, we'll do a deep dive into it. We started talking about St. Augustine, and St. Augustine was the Prince of Mystics, as he was called by, by, one, by one individual, but I'll let Carlos tell you more about him. Go ahead, Carlos. Okay, okay yeah, the person who called him Prince of Mystic, Mystics was Dom Cuthbert Butler uh, about 100 years ago or so on a history of mysticism that, that he wrote, and... Um, I encountered that chapter in, in his book back in 19, fall of 1973. And it was my introduction to Augustine, the mystic. Uh, so just to recap a little bit about Augustine, so that if somebody's picking us up for the first time, they can at least ha have this much about him. Born in 354 in North Africa to a pagan father and a Christian mother, and uh, he would die in 430. He lived a long time for that, that era uh, and actually died as the Vandals were besieging his city of Hippo in North Africa. He was a North African who spent some time in Italy, spent most of his life in North Africa. Latin was his language. He hated studying Greek. <laughs> he tells us all this in his autobiography, The Confessions, perhaps the well, many experts say it is the first truly personal autobiography ever written in Western culture. Uh, focuses on the inner person, not just on the events of what happened to his life. So that's how we know so much about him. He also wrote a lot. My God. Um, someone once said, um, I can't remember who said it, but it, it's, it's true. He said, if anybody says they've read everything Augustine has written, they're lying. <laughs> but uh, since he, he was not baptized, his father would not did not want him to become a Christian. 
he went through um, search for truth took him through uh, several different uh, kinds of religions and philosophies the most important of which were first Manichaeanism or Manichaeism as some uh, some people say which was a dualistic religion that believed that there was a good God and an evil God and that the material world that we inhabit was actually created by the evil deity and that human beings were really spiritual beings trapped in their bodies trapped in matter very complicated religion that um, displeased Augustine eventually he saw the top Manichaean in Carthage asked him some questions and he was not happy with the answers so his next step was Neoplatonism uh, a branch of Platonism and that's where we're going to start because this is where we left off we left off with Augustine uh, embracing Neoplatonism which I find interesting that he hated Greek and hated to study Greek yet was so influenced by Greek philosophy yes which means you know that he he had to read Latin translations and there were plenty of Latin translations that were later lost uh, thanks to the vandals and, uh, and other invaders right. of the same sort um uh, and and actually uh, Augustine's library his own library his can included his writings were rescued and taken to Italy before the vandals uh could get their hands on them so that's how we have so many of his texts and, but and Augustine, yeah go ahead no I'm just sorry but before we get into the the Neoplatonism and, and those influences just out of curiosity and I don't know if I asked you this um in the last episode, and I know you had mentioned it, you said his father didn't want him to be a Christian. Did his father subscribe or was a follower of any specific religion or was he? We don't know. We don't know. He doesn't say. And and his father died somewhat early so that he was left with just his, his mother who desperately wanted him to become a Christian and prayed to God constantly. Oh, please, you know, guide my son. And actually, St. Monica her name was Monica. Saint Monica is is the patron saint of mothers who are having problems with their children and want good things for them. So that's Very that's that's Augustine's mother, Monica. Yes, she she got her, her prayers were answered finally, but uh, she died shortly after Augustine was baptized. But she got to see him become a Christian. She never saw him uh, become a bishop or one of the most important bishops in, in, in the church. Uh, but she did see her prayers answered. Wonderful. So the Neoplatonists, um, as I said, a branch of Platonism. And in Platonism, um, it's not like Manichaeanism. It's not that you have uh, an evil creator, but rather there there is one being who who overflows and overflows and overflows at different levels of being or reality and at the very edge the lowest the lowest rung is our world on the other side of this material world we inhabit there is nothing there is non-being so there's no evil principle or evil god or evil deity in neoplatonism and evil is defined as the absence of good. So 
somehow in Neoplatonic philosophy, which is a religion of sorts, as I'll explain in a couple of minutes, the human being is like the Manichaean idea, a spiritual essence trapped in a material body. There's no explanation as to how this happens. Uh, there are some metaphors employed, but there's no like narrative of some battle in some higher realm or anything like that. It's just we human beings are a reflection of the creator. And that creator in Neoplatonism, I think we went into this last time, is a triad, three, a three. The highest principle is called the one and the one begins to overflow, and the second level is mind, or nous in Greek, and then the third level is spirit, or psyche, or psyche, from where we get our, our root word for psychology. Yeah, we did We did touch on that on the last episode, and, and we right. also touched on the parallels between that and the mystery of the Trinity. That's right, and uh, yes, Except that, uh, of course, the Christian Trinity, each of the persons of the Trinity is equally God or equally divine, whereas the Neoplatonic triad, there are different levels, higher to lower. Uh, but what I was trying to, uh, to get to is that, of course, Augustine embraces this. And the chief prince, the, the, the principal uh, figure in Neoplatonism is Plotinus. Who was Plotinus? He lived from 205 to 270, so a century before Augustine was born. And Plotinus uh, was a mystic who had mystical experiences uh, going up to the one, the noose, and the psyche. Uh, and Plotinus had said that the destiny of humans, the reason humans exist, is so that we can return to the one. But it takes many reincarnations to get to that point. That's part of the system. But here's some quotes from uh, Plotinus, you know, things that Augustine would have picked up. Uh, and I'm quoting Plotinus from his book, The Aeneids. Each one of us is part of the soul of the universe. Right? Here's another quote. Divinity is not external to anyone, but is present with all things, though they are ignorant that it is so. Another quote, I am striving to give back the divine in myself to the divine in the all. More, withdraw yourself and look, he says, and if you do not find yourself beautiful as yet, do as the creator of a statue that is to be made beautiful. The sculptor cuts away here, smooths there, makes this line lighter and the other one purer until he or she has shown a beautiful face upon the statue. What he means by that is that it takes self-discipline. It takes self-denial. And actually, Plotinus was um, pretty much into self-denial. He was an ascetic. And what what is uh, asceticism? Here's a good point. Uh, at which to introduce this term, asceticism is self-denial. And the word asceticism comes from the Greek word ascesis, which was originally used to describe athletic training. 
So the Olympic athletes, they did uh, ascesis, you know, they worked out. Uh, but in the Christian world, ascesis or ascetic became self-denial, fasting, doing away with, uh, you know, not just eating and, and drinking as much as possible, but also uh, no sex. So Plotinus, we are told, liked to eat by himself. He ate very little, but he liked to eat by himself because he thought that seeing someone put food in his or her mouth was as disgusting as watching somebody pass the food out at the other end of the body. He so, was in a, he was extreme. He, oh yes, yes he was. Uh, but uh, this tells us something about Neoplatonic attitudes towards the body, which we'll see some parallels in Christian mysticism. But here's the most uh, often quoted line from Plotinus. Life is the flight of the alone to the alone. This is very much a one-on-one -on -one between the human individual and the divine. There's nothing like a, a church. That's the best way to put it. You, you are pretty much on your own. You have, you know, you have teachers from whom you learn and, and other fellow Neoplatonists with whom you um, converse and, and encourage each other and so on and so forth. But it's pretty much a personal thing. And um, I'm going to uh, close with two more quotes from Plotinus because then we'll understand Augustine a lot better. So here's his, his vision of what it means to be human in a cosmic sense. And I'm going to quote, before we had our becoming here, we existed there. Men other than now, we were pure souls. That's it. Pure souls. That's so important. Intelligence inbound with the entire of reality, not fenced off. Now we are become a dual thing. No longer that which we were at first, and in a sense, no longer present. So there's this uh, utter loneliness uh, and, and, and uh, utterly crushing awareness that you were much better off in some other realm before you came down here. So you want to get back up. Right, and, and I've noticed I've noticed in the the quotes you've mentioned, there, there's that distinct. There's there's two different planes, two different realms. You know, the divine realm and and reality, and right. and it sort of runs. It's like a common thread that runs through all of those quotes that you mentioned, which I think is ex extremely important because it, it, even though he was not a Christian and was not talking about reaching Christ or, or, or reaching God right. uh, in the divine realm, it's the mechanism. It's, you know, whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, it's, it's you know, as far as Christians are concerned, God is there, whether you believe in him yes. or not. So the structure is there, the, the foundation is there, and they were just tapping into it without knowing what they were tapping into it. it you know, at least that's my take on it. Well, uh, definitely. Um, we spoke about this before, um, but very briefly, that, you know, and some, some Greek philosophers had this idea that they're, they're, all humans shared in the Logos, 
or word, which is, you know, the beginning of John's gospel and the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Some Greek philosophers uh, thought that there was this, uh, they called it the seed bearing logos or seed bearing word, which all humans shared in. And then later Christian uh, thinkers and mystics would say, yes, that's true. Uh, that, you know, human beings are capable of, of intuiting a great deal of truth. But the difference between Christians and all others who intuit these truths is that Christians have had more truth revealed to them by God himself. And, and you find that revelation in the Bible. And it also helps to make sense of everything that's going on. That's right. <laughs> but, um, you know, something, a philosophy that's very religious, like Neoplatonism, gave structure to much of Christian thinking. And it, it gets pretty, it, it gets um, at the highest reaches, it gets very, very philosophical. I'll, I'll end with this quote, which shows you where, where Plotinus could take Augustine. And I quote, he's talking about the highest mystical experiences, which he calls contemplation. And actually, I'll pause for a second. If anybody uh, in, in our listening audience is looking for any of these older figures to use the word mystical the way that we do, they're not going to find find anyone talking about mystical experience. They're going to be talking about contemplation. That's the term, contemplation, which means that you 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 know you, you passively uh, observe or absorbed into the presence of divinity. But here's uh, Plotinus's quote, which um, might sound a bit unintelligible, but eventually we'll we'll get to explain what this means. He says, in this state of absorbed contemplation, there is no longer any question of holding an object in view. I'll pause. What does he mean by that? It means you're not looking at anything with your eyes, as we do in this world. He continues, the vision is such that seeing and seen are one. Object and active vision have become identical. Woo! Whereas uh, in, in the movie The Matrix, uh, the main character, which actually The Matrix is, is a retelling of Plato and Platonic philosophy. Uh, but as Neo says in The Matrix, whoa, constantly when he starts to discover all these things that lie, are just beneath the surface or above the surface of material existence. So Augustine uh, reads Plotinus and reads other Neoplatonic texts. He's introduced to them in Italy, especially. Um, he's gone there to get a teaching job, to teach rhetoric, which was his subject. And um, he meets all these Neoplatonists and he's introduced to them and he's introduced to the texts. And basically his, his response as he meets with these uh, Neoplatonists and reads the texts is, is pretty much one of surprise, you know, like uh, the character Neo in the movie, The Matrix, when he discovers that there's uh, an alternate reality. Whoa, whoa, oh my God, Augustine is really bowled over and, um, thinks this is the way to go. But in Italy, 
he also meets uh, and mingles with um, Christians, Christian intellectuals. And he ends up in Milan, which, um, you know, sometimes served as the capital of the, the Western Roman Empire. And the emperor, Emperor Theodosius, for instance, had his court in Milan. And in Milan, the uh, Bishop of Milan is a very interesting man. His name is Ambrose, St. Ambrose. St. Ambrose came from one of the highest placed families in the government of the Roman Empire. So he was from uh, the elite class. But he converted to Christianity just not long before Augustine shows up. And to show you how flexible things were back in the late fourth century, Ambrose, uh, when he becomes a Christian, he is baptized, ordained a priest, and consecrated bishop over the space of three days. But Ambrose was immensely learned, cultured, and also very used to um, wielding power because he had grown up in a very political elite household. Augustine meets Ambrose, and this might sound strange to some. Ambrose teaches Augustine how to appreciate the Christian Bible because Augustine had found the Bible to be a very troublesome text. I said this in the, the previous uh, episode. Why, why was the Bible so um, troublesome or troubling to Augustine? Because he was reading it literally as, as a story, a story of people who did, many of whom did terrible things. Even, even the good ones in the story did terrible things, like King David. So he thought there was nothing uplifting uh, or redeeming about uh, the Bible. And he also found the whole crucifixion of Jesus uh, deal a, a bit disturbing. Now, did... did a, go ahead. Just, just <clears throat> quick question. is something you had mentioned earlier and piques my curiosity, and I'm sure our listeners as well. As Augustine was studying the Bible, was he... Uh, I, are we correct in assuming he was studying Latin translations of the Bible since he was not big into Greek, and so he wasn't reading the Greek text of the New Testament or the Septuagint of the Old That's Testament? Right. Uh, there were various Latin translations in his day. And actually, it's during his time that someone he came to know and to have a very close relationship with, St. Jerome, translated the Greek and the Hebrew into Latin. And his translation became the most widely used one and eventually became the official Latin translation known as the Vulgate, the Vulgate Latin Bible. It was the Bible written in the vulgar language of the people, Latin. So, yeah, but, you know, speaking of, of language and reading, Ambrose not only teaches Augustine that Christians see scripture, holy scripture, as having multiple levels and the lowest level is the literal level. Won't get too much into detail here, but most important thing is there's a literal level, there is an ethical level, and there's a spiritual level. And this triple lens through which scripture is read applies to every passage. 
So, for instance, a passage, the shortest sentence in the New Testament, Jesus wept. That has multiple meanings. The lowest of which is, yes, he cried. Right. But, you know, you can read his compassion into that because he cries when he hears uh, that, you know, Lazarus has been dead for three days. Uh, and there's an ethical level to this, too, about having compassion. But there, there are metaphorical readings of every passage. So that starts Augustine thinking, oh, maybe the Bible is not so so barbaric after all. Maybe there's something more to it than, than just reading the, uh, the, literal, the, the literal sense of it. Right. Absolutely. But then this is very funny because what convinces him that Ambrose must be right is that Ambrose can do something he that Augustine has never seen anyone do before. He can read without moving his lips because back then everybody read out loud. He said, oh, this man must be really super intelligent. <laughs> so to go from there, he starts reading the Bible. He starts hanging out with Christians. And as he's doing this, he's still a Neoplatonist. And he describes in the Confessions his first mystical experience. And I'm going to read that passage because it's very important. It gets us to the heart of things. So he's, he's not a Christian yet. He hasn't been baptized, but he's you know hanging out with Christians, but he's also hanging out with Neoplatonists. And he actually has a mystical experience before he becomes a Christian. That's correct, yes. And here's how he describes it. Being admonished by these books of the Neoplatonists to return into myself, because that was the Neoplatonist thing, right? You had an image of the one nous and psyche inside you, and that's where you had a connection to the divine. So he does this. He, 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 he turns into himself. I entered into my inward soul. This I could do because you were my helper. What does he mean by that? This is because he's writing this as a Christian. And continually throughout the confessions, he's talking to God as if God is his uh, interlocutor, like you and me here, just chatting. This I could do because you, let's put this in brackets or parentheses, God, we're my helper. I entered. And with the eye of my soul, I saw above the same eye of my soul and above my mind, I saw the immutable light, the unchanging light. It was not the common light which all flesh can see, nor was it simply a greater one of the same sort, as if the light of day were to grow brighter and brighter and flood all space. No, it was not like that light. Different, yes, very different from all earthy light, whatever. Nor was it above my mind in the same way as oil is above water, right? It's not spatial. It's not a, an up and a down kind of thing. Uh, as oil is above water, or heaven above earth, it was higher because it made me, and I was below it because I was made by it. He has that image of God as light. Right? I'm pausing here. I'll return to the quote. This is how the quote ends. He who knows the truth knows that light, and he who knows it knows eternity. Love knows it. 
O eternal truth and true love and beloved eternity. And that is a Christian remembering his experience as a Neoplatonist. But it's a very Christian reading of his Neoplatonist experience. But still, he admits he hadn't been baptized, and yet he has this view of God as a superior light. I think this is this is really important because a lot of our listeners may have wondered why we spent so much time talking about Greek philosophy and Neoplatonism and the thought process and the how people thought and and functioned and reasoned in that in that era. But I, I think this kind of shows why we are so we went so deep into it because it really does show how God used that philosophy, God used that form of reasoning to be able to reach humanity, to be able to reach humans uh, in the mystical sense. Because as you said, he wasn't baptized yet, he wasn't Christian, and he actually experienced a, actually had a mystical experience. So uh, I think once you, I think it was, it's so important to understand how Greek philosophy influenced all of that. Yes. And it's also, you know, beyond that, I think now that you mention it, I'm glad you brought this up because how did people convert to Christianity? <laughs> they had to have, they had, to have, they had to be getting some message that made sense to them. They had to be convinced. So, uh, to be convinced, yes. And it's the same uh, nowadays as it was back then, you know, to convince someone that the truth with a capital T can be found in the Christian religion, it has to make sense to them. So, but let me read on a little more because this will this will take us to uh, a, another very significant point, which is that in in the Confessions, when he's describing this experience, Augustine explains what happened to him because he was not yet a Christian. Right? He sees this light. Then what happens next? Well, it's very interesting. He says, you, speaking to God, you beat back the weakness of my sight, shining forth upon me your dazzling beams of light. And I trembled with love and fear. I realized that I was far away from you in the land of unlikeness. As if I heard your voice from on high, and this would be God speaking to him. I quote, I am the food of strong men. Grow, and you shall feed on me. Nor shall you change me like the food of your flesh into yourself, but you shall be changed into my likeness. And then he understands, he tells us in the confessions, I'll, I'll summarize here a bit so that we can move on. He realizes that he is not prepared. He's not ready to get any higher than having this vision of this dazzling light, this vision with the so-called eye of his soul. And he realizes that he's come finally, what he's been searching for all his life. He's, he's come to glimpse the truth with a capital T. And he says then, you, God, didst cry to me from afar. I am that I am, which is what God said to Moses on Mount Sinai when Moses asked, well, what's your name? What should I tell my people you're called? I am that I am. And then Augustine says this, he says, I heard this as things are heard 
in the heart. There was no room for doubt. It's very curious because notice he heard it in his heart. And, and this metaphorical language in his day and age, as in ours, means that there was a very, very deeply emotional dimension to this experience. He, he heard it in his heart. And then there was no room for doubt, he says. I should have been more readily doubted that I am alive than that the truth, capital T, exists. Wow. So he, he learns a hard lesson there. So he becomes more interested in uh, joining the Christians. But he feels there are certain things that stand in his way. And what are these things that stand in his way? Well, it's kind of odd because at this very same time, he gets his hands that he's brought a book that he didn't know existed, a book written by another Christian bishop, Athanasius of Alexandria. Boy, quite a character. And we'll eventually run into Athanasius again. But Athanasius had written the biography of one of the very first Christian hermits in the Egyptian desert, whose name was Anthony, actually known as Anthony of the Desert. Athanasius wrote this life of Anthony, which tells how Anthony um, went off into the desert by himself and prayed all day and got close to God. And actually, there's no description of Anthony's mystical experiences, but it's quite clear he is having close contact with God. I'll pause for a second. I know I pause a lot, but it's important to put a marker here. Next thing we need to deal with after we're done with Augustine is to deal with the rise of monasticism among Christians, because it is in monastic culture that you will find most mystics, especially in early Christian history and medieval and early modern and modern Christian history. People who devote their entire life in one way or another to prayer and to self-denial. So Augustine reads about Anthony and he's thrilled. He wants to be just like Anthony. He wants to become a Christian monk, uh, perhaps even a hermit. But he feels that there is something missing in him. He could not deny himself the way that Anthony did. And you have to be very careful when you read these ancient texts because um, these ancient Christian texts especially, they, they are not very explicit when it comes to anything that has to do with sex. But to say it as bluntly and as briefly as possible, at this point in his life, Augustine still thinks he can't live without sex. But having read Anthony's life, and this is what the kind of Christian he wants to be, he can't convert until he's cured, basically, of his lust. And here's one of the most beautiful lines in the Confessions, where Augustine is examining his will, why, why he wants, why he wants sex, when he knows that it's, he'd be much better off without it. So he says, what is this monstrosity? referring to his will, right? What is this monstrosity? Why is it a monstrosity? Then he prays to God, let your mercy shine on me, please. What is the monstrosity? 
Why is it? He says, here's the monstrosity. The mind commands the body and it obeys immediately. The mind commands itself and it is resisted. The mind can command the hand to move and it moves, but mind commands itself and you realize you're basically two. Which he gets from St. Paul. I forget which one of Paul's letters. You know, what is what is this? What I want to do, I, I can't do. And what I don't want to do, right. I do. That's right. And that is the problem. So immediately after he says this, he tells us what's holding him back. And I quote, the very toys of toys, vanities of vanities. My old mistresses still enthralled me because he had various partners in his life. They shook my fleshly garment and whispered softly, Ooh, do you want to do away with us? <laughs> and from that moment, we shall no more be with you forever. And from that moment, shall not this or that be lawful for you forever? And so on and so forth. Oh, so, oh, can I live without this? He's torn. He wants to become a Christian. He thinks it's essential. Remember, he has been reading Plotinus, who was ashamed to eat in front of others. The body is kind of a problem. So he's in Milan. He's got friends there, especially a friend uh, called Olypius, who has been helping him read the Bible and also has, uh, you know, uh, introduced them to Athanasius' the life of Anthony. He has a, a sort of a nervous breakdown in a garden in Milan, starts weeping uncontrollably because he can't bring himself to become a Christian because of his impurity and his lustfulness. And then the weirdest thing happens. He says, and I'm going to read his account, right? I flung myself down. How? I don't know. Under a certain fig tree giving free course to my tears and the streams of my eyes gushed out an acceptable sacrifice unto you, God. And not indeed in these words, yet to this effect, I spoke unto you. How long, Lord, how long will you always, will you be angry with me forever? Oh, remember not against us former iniquities, for I felt that I was enthralled by them. Oh, how long, how long, tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why is there not this hour an end to my uncleanness? And here comes a very, very peculiar uh, mystical experience. Uh, he had been saying to God, Oh God, grant me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> he had been saying that for a while before this point, but now he's saying, I want it now. I want it now. And while he was crying his eyes out, he hears a voice from the garden next door. He couldn't tell if it was a boy's voice or a girl's voice. Chanting and repeating, and I'll say the Latin first, tole lege, tole lege, tole lege, probably in a sing-song. Uh, pick it up and read it. Pick it up and read it. Pick it up and read it. He says, uh, I didn't know if there was any game like this of children to sing such words, nor had I ever heard anything like it. So, and I'm quoting, Restraining the torrent of my tears, I rose up, interpreting it no other way than as a command to me from heaven to open the book I had with me and to read the first chapter 
my eyes should fall upon. So he had this book and he opens it at random. And what does he see? He gets to Rome, Paul's letter to the Romans, 13, 13, not in rioting and in drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And that's it. He meets Jesus. He's no longer like Plotinus doing the flight of the alone to the alone. Jesus can help him to overcome his broken will and his lustfulness, which he thought was an obstacle. And that's his conversion. And not long after that, He's baptized by whom? By St. Ambrose himself. You know, it's funny, you, you speak about this, and it reminds me of a, a story I read or, or heard a while back ago, and I don't know about St. Augustine, and I don't know if it's apocryphal or, or it's documented, or maybe it's, I haven't read all of the confessions, so I don't know if it's, it would be in there. But it was a story of him after his conversion walking down the street and one of his former mistresses sees him and calls out to him and his reaction is to just start running and she chases after him. She chases after him, you know, yelling, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I, Augustine, it is I. And he finally turns around and he says, I know, but I am not I. <laughs> well, I am no longer that person. Yep. Uh, I don't know if that's apocryphal or not. There are a lot of apocryphal stories about Augustine that become so intertwined with, with the real things that they become part of his character, his persona. So yeah, that, that would be true. He would have done something like that. He, he continued to write throughout his life that he was very, very upset. He didn't know why it was that he kept having dreams in which he was basically reliving his relationships with these women. Uh, he kept dreaming about them, felt terrible about it because, um, well, he took a vow of celibacy when he was ordained a priest and shortly thereafter uh, consecrated as bishop. So anyway, he wants to go back to North Africa. He wants to go home. His mother is with him. He wants to go home and, and establish a monastery and live amongst life. But um, there are steps in his life that he doesn't expect. The first one is that his mother dies. As they're leaving, for, they're, they're at the port of Ostia, which was the port of Rome. It was right at the mouth of the Tiber River. And he's with his mother and they're heading back to North Africa. She is thrilled. She is so, so delighted her son finally became a Christian. but. Once again, something very strange happens to him. He's on the balcony with his mother, and they both have a mystical experience at the very same time. And they have an identical mystical experience, a joint mystical experience, which is very, very rare, extremely rare. So uh, they were talking about religious, uh, you know, uh, religion on the balcony. And I'll read to you uh, this story about his mystical experience with his mother said, when our conversation had brought us to the point where the very highest of physical sense and the most intense illumination of physical light seemed in comparison with the sweetness of that life to come, 
not worthy of comparison, not even mention. So they were talking about the afterlife. And he says, we lifted ourselves with a more ardent love and we gradually passed through all the levels of bodily objects and even through to heaven itself, where the sun, moon, and stars shine on the earth. Indeed, we soared higher by an inner musing, speaking, and marveling at your works, O God. And we came at last to our own minds and went beyond them that we might climb as high as that region of unfailing plenty where you feed Israel forever with the food of truth, where life is that wisdom by whom all things are made. Well, there there we go again. And then he says, and while we were thus straining after wisdom, we just barely touched her with the whole effort of our hearts. Notice the emotional thing here, our hearts. Then with a sigh, leaving the first fruits of the spirit bound to that ecstasy, we returned to the sounds of our own tongue where the spoken word had both beginning and end. But what is what can be like to your word, O Lord? You who remain in yourself without becoming old, and you make all things new. So finally, as a Christian, he got to the point where he he encountered the divine more fully. And was able to understand it. Yes, and it was outside of time. And it didn't involve human language. It was like an immediate, total apprehension or cognition of the divine. That's what mystical experiences are all about, right? Language fails. Everything that you've read, everything you've heard with words is just insufficient for this overpowering experience. And um, his mother died shortly thereafter, before before the boat took off. They had been talking about the afterlife, and this happens. And then when he gets to North Africa, and he's in the town of Hippo, which is in present-day Tunisia, he's attending Mass, and people find out who, you know, oh, hey, here's this uh, rhetorician guy who's, uh, you know, he's very smart, and, and he's just become Christian. They had a very old bishop in Hippo who they knew was about to die very soon, So the congregation grabs Augustine and claims him as their assistant bishop. (laughs) And Augustine is crying, weeping. And then he will say that uh, people thought he was weeping because he was so, so happy. But no, he was weeping because he was so miserable. Now he can't be a monk. (laughs) And he had to spend the rest of his life being a bishop and being involved with all kinds of problems. But he managed to write quite a bit, too. And you know what? This is the oddest thing in Augustine, that he doesn't write this way about his mystical experiences ever again. So he's the prince of mystics, but boy, he writes very little uh, about his own experiences. And it's very, very, uh, very revealing, I think, that, well, he will write a rule for, for monasteries, He will always have his heart set on living a a monk's life because monk could spend much more time praying during the day and night than a bishop who's very busy handling everybody's problems. But this is how Augustine transitions because as a bishop, 
he will write so many texts that will become the foundation of much of medieval Christian theology in the West, in Latin, right? This is all in Latin. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a shame that after he had that experience with his mother right before she passed and he wrote so eloquently about it that he didn't really put down on paper um, or papyrus or whatever, they, I guess it would be paper they were writing on already back then. No, they, I don't, you know, I'll be honest with you. I don't know. I think they might've been using papyrus. I don't know. Gee, see, this happens to me when I teach all the time. Somebody will bring up something and I realize, gee, I don't know that. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it was parchment. Uh, Probably parchment or something. Well, parchment but it's, you know, it's very heavy parchment. That's true. Yeah. It's very heavy. It, it, you know, a book or, or scroll made out of parchment uh, can get pretty heavy. So I think they use paper of some kind. But but, but either anyway. either way, it's a shame he didn't write it down. Being the Prince of yeah. Mystics, and and yeah. you can only imagine he had plenty more of these experiences. But I I wonder if the fact that he just couldn't put it into words, and couldn't explain it, and just right. didn't want to write the same thing, you know, as as we mentioned earlier, Neo to say, whoa, yeah, <laughs> you know, he's just what gonna write, you, you know, what Plus, can you say about it? So all he can do is just write other books and write other texts to help people, to lead them to have the same experience that's as he, right. he and, felt. You know, that's what I was going to lead to next. And maybe we can continue this in the next episode. But he has so many crises to solve. And he spends so much time writing that to handle these crises that I think his mysticism flows through everything he writes, especially his book, on the Trinity, we can return to that maybe next time. But his book on the Trinity is very mystical. And also everything he wrote against these two other heresies, uh, the Pelagian heresy and the Donatist heresy, Augustine becomes a very, very fearsome opponent of anyone who claims that any sort of perfection is possible here on earth. Because there were plenty of perfectionists writing around in his day. And, and some of them came from monastic communities, right? They said, oh, well, you know, if you fast long enough, you fast enough, and you do this well enough, and you pray enough, you, you can stop sinning. But Augustine was very opposed to all this. Yeah, and, and I think I think we, we're, we're going to have to do an episode on, on heresy, uh, not only real heresy that was going on in the church, but also perceived heresy by some of the mystics throughout history that were accused of being heretics. Oh, well, yeah, it's very dangerous. Because of that. So, yeah. so I think th that would be a good episode when we do that to, to not only touch on St. Augustine, but also other mystics that either fought heresy or, or were being accused of heresy and, and the role that played in the church. That's right. Yes. It's very important, especially, well, we'll, you know, eventually get to, some of these mystics who were uh, accused of heresy. Yep. See, this is it. If you keep quiet and you just say basically, whoa, <laughs> I can't explain this to you. It's harder to get in trouble that way. That's true. When you start trying to explain things that, oh boy, uh, it can get a bit prickly. Yeah, absolutely. But once again, it's, it's, 
you've given us a fascinating and very thought-provoking profile on on St. Augustine and and what he went through. And and I think one of the key takeaways here, for me at least, has been that, you know, the mystical experiences began for him even before he became a Christian and then became so intense that apparently he couldn't even write them down. So, And he was so busy and he took his job so seriously, right? That's absolutely right. He thought it was best just to deal with things that affected everyone. Augustine um, could not abide perfectionists of any sort. That's very important. And that's also very important in the Christian mystical tradition that, you know, the, the mystical quest is not about becoming perfect. As a matter of fact, all the great mystics are very painfully aware of how they fall short constantly every single day in, in, in truly loving God fully and loving their neighbor fully or doing the right thing. Although, of course, they become holy men and women whose lives are far holier than, than, than most other people, but they're very painfully aware of their lack of perfection. And Augustine is very uh, good at dealing with this in a very practical manner. And it gets passed on. And there's no place in the Christian community where perfectionism uh, is more troublesome than in the monastic com community among monks and nuns. And uh, since it is the hermits, the monks and the nuns who are the, you find the greatest number of mystics among them. It's a life dedicated to becoming a mystic if you do it right, if you take it seriously. So I think next time we need to deal with the, the whole matrix, and I call it a matrix because it is, it's inseparable, the matrix of monasticism and mysticism, inseparable. The two are inseparable. And we need to understand why this is so and how this developed. So I guess I don't have to ask you what we're going to talk about next episode. No, nope, that's it. <laughs> so monasticism it is. Well, Carlos, I really appreciate you taking the time, sitting down and oh, going over this pleasure. with me and for our for our listeners. And I look forward to, and we all look forward to the next episode where we'll, we'll tackle and, and get into the matrix with, uh, with the, monasticism. The, the monastic matrix, not, not, not the uh, 1999 film, which is, which is great. If, if, if no one in our audience has ever seen that film, the first one, the very first one, I highly recommend it. Because if you want to understand Plato's concept of what's real, there's no better, no better movie. Well, if you haven't watched it, make sure you go see it. But again, thank you, Carlos. And okay. thank, you, thank you, everybody, for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it on over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.